It's Muppeturgy, and we enjoy being a season three finale about the Cheryl Ladd episode of The Muppet Show with our own very special guest star, Danny Horn. Yay! Let's not overdo it. (laughs) Hey, everyone. Welcome back. We're so glad you've made it this far. We are here today to conclude season three, and we're so glad that you're here with us. I'm David Levy. Here today with me are... Michal Richardson. Christy Bauer. And Adam Grossworth. And our aforementioned guest star, Danny Horn. Hi. Hello, everybody. Hey, Danny. Thanks for being here. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, I'm Danny Horn. I have a long history with Muppet fandom. Uh, I created Muppet Zine back in the 90s when people used to make zines and send them through the mail. And then I created Tough Pigs in 2001 and then co-founded Muppet Wiki with Scott Hansen in 2005. And right now I'm also running Muppet Pictures, which I don't know if y'all have seen. It's a, a feed on Twitter and Facebook where I post three pictures of the Muppets every day at random intervals, um, which is really fun. And sometimes they're themed and you get to guess. Yes. Yeah. They're often often themed in ways sometimes that only I understand. And so if people are listening to the podcast, they will like it. I'm, I'm excited to have like a new Muppet. That's why I'm talking about it. I, I finally have like a new Muppet project. Like as of like five months ago and that's it. Anyway, so that's why I am. Hi, I'm Danny. I'm so happy oh, to be here. Right now. Yeah. And it's a delight. Yay. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. A minor correction, but you know, we, we don't like getting our pop cultural facts wrong. In the uh, Sylvester Stallone episode, I said that both Eye of the Tiger and Living in America were featured in Rocky Three. Eye of the Tiger was introduced in Rocky Three, but Living in America was in Rocky Four. We regret the error. Also in that episode, we had a whole discussion about why the lion sounded like Jim Henson, but is credited to Dave Goals. Listeners on Twitter chimed in to say that no, it is definitely Dave. That's just a voice he does that happens to sound like Jim. I'm going to take their word for it. Sure sounds like Jim. So I, yes. I have a fun addition. Fun, but sort of bittersweet addition. So um, since we last recorded Muppet Show guest star Raquel Welch passed away, which is very mm. sad. Um, but in the various tributes that appeared to her online, on Bob Mackey's Instagram, he talked about her cavewoman dress in the Muppet Show episode when she did mm-hmm. Baby It's Me. And it was one of his, which we didn't know and which we thought was very cool. That is very like, cool. Once you know, it, it seems very yeah. obvious. Right, of course. <laughs> but yeah, very cool. Once you know that Bob Mackey has an Instagram. Also that. <laughs> makes you want to drop everything. Here is a Muppet News flash. We are here this week to talk about Season 3, Episode 24 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of May 9th, 1978. That may confuse you if you've been paying attention. This is the same date, according to Muppet Wiki, as the Helen Reddy episode that we talked about way back in October. So we have somehow time-traveled, and the last episode in the production order was made at the same time as the 13th episode in the production order. In production documents, the episode is referred to as 324 and as episode 72, but it was recorded the same week as Helen Reddy uh, in episode 313, and my people checked. It's in Henson's Red Book, like on the site that they were working with Cheryl Ladd this week, and there's also some contemporary uh, news stories about Helen Reddy being in uh, England this week uh, to, to film The Muppet Show. We don't actually know why this is listed as 324 both in those production documents and then kind of ever since in, in the running order that Henson uh, says is official. the After that week in May, there was a production break so that they could film the Muppet movie from May to November. 
Um, and then when they came back in November, they shot Harry Belafonte in episode 314. I have a guess about this, which is that maybe they were planning for Cheryl Ladd to film the last episode of the season. So it was 324. Um, and then because of the Muppet movie filming, maybe it didn't work for her schedule anymore. Like that may have changed. And therefore, like it was going to be too late for her. And so they brought her in early and did Helen Reddy and Cheryl Ladd the same week. And they just kept the production. number. That is my theory. Yeah, that would that would make sense. Um, f- from up at Wiki, it's a little weird, weird that I'm about to read this yes. with you here, Danny, because it's possible <laughs> that you wrote it. Um, but uh, the numbers ascribed to the episodes uh, originate with their production code. Numbers were assigned according to factors outside of the dates in which each episode entered production, and the production of many episodes would overlap with the crew filming material for two separate episodes concurrently. Uh, in some cases, episodes were recorded out of their original production sequence due to the availability of the guest stars or other factors. Uh, this is like wildly out of that order, but yeah, I think mm-hmm. it makes sense. Uh, as you said that, you know, and if, if you go to the Muppet wiki article on this episode, uh, it now has a thing that we just wrote and added on to it today. So thank uh-huh. you, Adam, for noticing this because it made us go and add more stuff to the wiki. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, at the, uh, uh, museum of the moving image here in New York, there is, um, a, uh, list of the season one production sheet mm. with a bunch of information on it. Um, uh, you know, it would be a, a Google sheet or an Excel document now <laughs> um, from season one. Uh, and we'll put, a, we'll put a photo of it on the website. Um, but on that, you can see where names have been erased and moved mm. around. It, it's all in pencil. And um, there's one name that's been erased and rewritten and erased multiple times that I can't entirely make out, but it's somebody who never actually wound up appearing on the Muppet show, I think at <laughs> all, but definitely not in season one. So this is a thing that happened and, you know, yeah. there oh, we are. It's the Chico and the Man guy. Oh, is that who it is? Yeah. What's Black Albertson. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, that's so it. I know this because uh, that was my addition to Muppet Wiki after we went to the museum together. I there you go. uploaded the photo <laughs> yeah, yeah. of this and uploaded that information. There you go. Not that I can't make it out. It's that it's someone I have never heard of. But yes, that yeah. is who it is. Grandpa um, Joe from uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, okay. Oh. Anyway, it aired, this episode, in New York City on November 6th, 1978, which tracks with all of these dates mm-hmm. we just threw at you. It could not have been filmed in order episode 24 it was number eight in the air order in between alice cooper and pearl bailey so in the news this week uh of the episodes airing hey remember that new york city newspaper strike it's over yeah uh, uh, it, <laughs> it has just ended uh i i you know i actually don't i don't know i mean i guess i guess labor because they held out for a really long time yeah <laughs> i hope so So in today's paper, we have 88 Days in Review, a special news summary in the second edition. So on day one, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what you missed on Glee. I mean, basically. (laughs) It is so crazy to me that that the New York Times, like, just wasn't published. I mean, not just New York Times. And it was like, what, Daily News and... I mean, Daily News and New York Post, but there were also more newspapers then. So every newspaper in New York City... For 88 days. That's so it's crazy. wild. I was actually, I lived in North Jersey um, at this time. And my family, we got both New York Times and the um, the Star-Ledger, which is a New Jersey paper. And I have no memory of the New York Times just not existing for a couple months. But I probably wouldn't because that wasn't the one that had comics in it. Right. Like, I was going to say because the Star-Ledger had the if comics. The Star, if the, what I used yeah, it for. if the Star-Ledger went on a newspaper strike... That would have been like a childhood trauma memory that I would still be I would still be um, trying to deal with in therapy. 
so in the actual news of the actual day, uh, the midterm elections uh, are tomorrow, also New York governor. Um, the New York Times has its endorsements today, which feels real late just by today's mm-hmm. standards. Uh, there are also a bunch of election day sales. That is not a thing that still happens. <laughs> People have to day off work then? Was that why? I don't think so. I, it's I Any know. excuse in 1978. Right? Any excuse yeah. for a sale. Uh, and I the think endorsement can... being late would make sense because there wasn't a paper. Oh, right. Oh, of course. Right. <laughs> I, <laughs> put that yes, of course. Thank you. Thank you, Chrissy. Um, the sale thing, I think, actually is, is more to do with how advertising worked, right? Because yeah. the newspaper ads, mat- the daily ads mattered. So the they could do a sale tied to anything. The other headlines are, you know, the usual mix of Middle East, Vietnam, and Cambodia. We don't need to talk about it. Uh, saccharin is a potential carcinogen. This is so funny to me that this comes out in 1978 because this knowledge did not stop my mother, who was a cancer survivor, from continuing to make sweet and low, which is saccharin, mm. a cornerstone of our family diet for at least another decade or two. Well, it's still only potential. This is, I mean, this is and I read the article. This is still like the very beginning of the, of this of this news. But yeah, a decade or two does feel a little long. <laughs> but this is sort of the the beginning of the shift from being a sweet and low society to an equal society and the shift from tab to diet Coke. So it's very important. It is. RIP tab though. Yeah. A bunch of ads are playing catch up, which, uh, you know, you said that's what you missed on Glee, but like it, it is weird. Like I understand the newspapers were not around, but like the stores were still open. (laughs) Television and radio still existed. (laughs) It's like everybody was living in a cave during the strike. There is literally an ad that says, here's what you've missed in the last 12 weeks at Sam Goody. Well, you Which, know, <laughs> that is fantastic. You know, for theater fans, we always hear about these shows that that should have been hits, but ended up flopping because no one got to hear about them because they opened during a newspaper strike and there was no review. And so no one got to go see Leslie Ann Warren and Drat the Cat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like, I get that. But like the idea that you wouldn't buy a record. <laughs> if you didn't know it was coming out, not everyone is like us who went to the record store every week to see what was in the new releases. Well, and this would be this would be that, like that reaching out, <laughs> reaching out specifically to the people who like who use the newspaper as their way of catching up with popular music. I just feel like over the course of twelve weeks, you would find you would another, have found another <laughs> you would find a solution to this problem. Yeah, um, the no, somebody just- ad. It's particularly great for our purposes because it's an amazing snapshot of the last 12 weeks in 1978 pop culture. And obviously it will be on the website. If you it was a good time. Yeah. Kubrick films The Shining in secrecy in English studio. I mean, I don't know how sacred it is. There's an article in the New York Times. There's a column about advertising, which makes the ads for advertisers that I've talked about before make a little more sense, though those ads are not always with it. Um, but I have to read you one of them. The Top Honchos magazine celebrates the return of the top honcho of advertising columnists. Dunn's Review, the magazine for corporate top honchos. Oh my God, stop saying honcho. <laughs> <laughs> the Top Honchos magazine. So it's a magazine for honchos or by honchos or about honchos. Correct. Or- <laughs> also, please stop <laughs> saying yes. honcho. <laughs> well, and only, only the top honchos, though. All the Correct. other, all, right. all of the like medium. Not the lesser. Yeah, the medium yeah. honchos. And I had, did had check the, the gay porn magazine Honcho began publication in April 1978. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Anyway, yeah, there's a bunch of ads being like, yay, the Times is back. And there's also a little thing uh, apologizing that they didn't have room for all of the ads Aww. in the paper <laughs> because they, they had such a backlog. Who are they apologizing to? 
I'm sorry. I guess the advertisers? I don't know. Maybe it wasn't an apology, but just like just stating. Yeah. There would be more ads later. Don't worry. (laughs) That's just wild, you guys. Okay, so the number one song on the Cashbox Pop Charts is Hot Child in the City. We've gone back to November 1978. Does anybody want to guess what the number one album was? Is it Grease? It's Grease. It's the word. Nice. Still the word. Or back to be in the word. On television, In Search of the Great Lakes Triangle. I watched it. I learned that one third <laughs> of all unsolved American air and sea disasters take place in the Great Lakes Triangle. Huh. Did they find it? I mean, yeah, it's a it's an area of the Great Lakes thing where we know. It wasn't a secret. Just making a whole episode in search of it. I just hope they, they got yeah, they did. <laughs> got out again. Do you remember what a big deal the Bermuda Triangle was when we were kids? Like yeah. that was I, I like I feel like we heard about it all the time. I was so scared of it when I eventually <laughs> went to Bermuda. I was like, oh my god, am I ever coming oh, no. back? <laughs> yeah. Do people still like the equivalent worry about of quicksand? It? Yeah. Great question. Yeah. yeah. Did all the quicksand move to the Bermuda Triangle? <laughs> <laughs> that was the real problem. Uh, over on CBS, uh, we have WKRP in Cincinnati. Uh, people, which we have discussed before, they've fully given up. The, the, there's no blurb. There's no description. I, I couldn't even find one. They're just not even trying anymore. MASH. On one day at a time, an unmarried classmate of Barbara's unexpectedly arrives at the Romano household with a baby. Scandal. Scandal. And Lou Grant. Uh, NBC Celebrity Family Feud featuring the cast of Eight is Enough, Soap, Barney Miller, and Welcome Back, Cotter. I can't say if that sounds like fun or just like a headache. But I would watch Robert Keown. It sort of depends on who's dude. paired against whom, right? Yeah, like, and on like <laughs> on like which which soap cast members show up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And then football. Uh nobody cares. Uh <laughs> ABC, um, Little House on the Prairie, Mary's Wedding. Uh mm-hmm. definitely a big deal. Is there a dust storm? Of course there's a dust storm. <laughs> uh obviously, of course I watched it. Um and then uh a TV movie Rainbow about a young Judy Garland played by uh, Andrea McCardle, best known as being the original Annie in the Broadway musical hmm. Annie. Uh, also Piper Laurie and Rue McClanahan. Andrea McCardle and Piper Laurie, both famous for properties about terrifying children. No, nothing for that one. Okay, thanks. Uh, <laughs> Piper Laurie was in Carrie. Let's see, so, and, okay. Uh, we've, you know what? We've written down a list of your good points and your bad points. <laughs> <laughs> this might not be the best time to bring it up. Uh, Tic Tac Doe is on Channel 11. Uh, I, I just haven't noticed that before, and I loved Tic Tac Doe when I was a kid. It's so weird to think of that as a primetime show because that was definitely like afternoon block when I was yeah, a kid. Yeah, it, it might have been late night. I didn't actually write down the time. Uh, and Channel 11 was definitely syndicated. So You just you saw Tic Tac Doe and you got excited. I just made a note. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, at 9 p.m. on Channel 9, 1973's Silent Night, Bloody Night. <laughs> Christmas just gets earlier every year. And bloodier. And the New York gubernatorial debate is on Channel 5 at 11.30 p.m. What? 11.30? Right, the night before the election. What? (laughs) Well, you gotta get those last-minute swing voters to... I know, but... I just... its The past was weird. Okay. (laughs) Hey, tonight our very special guest is one of the loveliest and most talented ladies of the entire entertainment world, Cheryl Ladd. Cheryl Ladd, singer, actor, author and angel. 
Born in South Dakota in 1951, Cheryl Jean Stupplemore hit the road following her high school graduation, touring with the country western band The Music Shop. The group hit LA in 1970 and promptly disbanded. However, this put Cheryl, now going by the name Sherry Moore, in the right place at the right time to be discovered by songwriter Danny Jansen, who was assembling a girl group to provide the voices for the Hanna-Barbera television adaptation of Archie Comics' Josie and the Pussycats. Sherry was cast as Melody, the drummer, and the group recorded an album and a number of singles, in addition to providing voice acting for the cartoon. The music failed to make a splash, though, so a planned tour was canceled and the girls were replaced with other voices for the follow-up series, Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space. A few years ago, Rhino Handmade did reissue all of their original Josie and the Pussycats recordings. The CD is extraordinarily hard to find, but it is on YouTube and it will be in our show notes. And it is a delight if you like that sort of thing. Uh, it's it's very much like right at the intersection of like Motown and the Brill Building. It's just, it's really lovely. Cheryl spent most of the 70s making one-off appearances in television shows, credited as Cheryl Stoppelmore until 1974, when she appeared on Happy Days on the episode Wish Upon a Star as the celebrity that Richie has won a date with. Mm. That's because in 1973, she married actor David Ladd, the Nepo baby of Alan Ladd. Cheryl's breakthrough year was 1977, when she joined the second season of Charlie's Angels to replace the departing Farrah Fawcett Majors. She played Chris Monroe, the younger sister of Fawcett's character, and would remain with the show through its cancellation in 1981. With her newfound visibility, Cheryl returned to the recording studio and released an eponymous album in 1978. Cheryl Ladd, the album, reached 129 on the Billboard 200 chart, and her single Think It Over peaked at 34 on the Hot 100. Her follow-up album, 1979's Dance Forever, peaked at 179. Her subsequent album was released only in Japan. In 1980, she and David Ladd divorced, although she kept his name. In 1981, she married music producer Brian Russell, and they remain together to this day. In the 80s and beyond, Cheryl largely acted in films and TV movies, although she was the lead on the TV show One West Waikiki in the mid-90s, and she had a recurring role as Jane Conn's wife on the show Las Vegas. I mentioned up top that she's an author. She wrote a children's book in 1996 and a quasi-memoir that's mostly about golf in 2005. Relevant to our interests, Cheryl hit Broadway in the 2000 revival of Annie Get Your Gun, taking over the role from Bernadette Peters prior to Reba McIntyre's sensational run in the show. Uh, I think Reba McIntyre did such a tremendous job with it that we mm. sort of forget that Cheryl did it before her. Uh, she's still around. In 2021, she was in the musical film A Cowgirl Song, and she was on Dancing with the Stars last year, although not for very long. Uh, that's what I have about Cheryl Ladd. Does anyone have Cheryl Ladd memories they'd like to share? I remember, like, the... The interesting thing that was happening with Cheryl Ladd and with Charlie's Angels was that there was this phenomenon called jiggle television, um, which is actually like a phrase that an executive at NBC coined to make fun of what was happening at ABC was like jiggle television was this phrase that described like a show that would have beautiful women in loose clothing so that you would like they'd run around, you'd see their breasts jiggle and their buttocks jiggle. And so the, the shows that I've seen you know, Charlie's Angels really was like the number one jiggle television show. Um, and then Three's Company and huh. Wonder Woman also were kind of, were considered that. And then um, eventually Muppets Tonight. And Muppets Tonight. <laughs> um, so Charlie's Angels was like this weird mix of like crime fighting action show and a show about like famously gorgeous women not wearing bras fighting crime. And it, it's like this weird duality that I think is kind of incorporated into the Muppet Show episode. Like I heard your, I heard your episode about Raquel Welch um, a little while ago, and it's kind of similar. Like 
mid 1970s American public consciousness kind of like working out the question, what are women for? Like women, like why do we have them? And what are they like? <laughs> that is just that's what we were doing in the mid seventies was just what like if they were working, pigs. Yeah, just like working that out as a as what if a they fought question. crime? What if they yeah. Yeah. And I feel like uh, you know, that was definitely kinda at the heart of Charlie's Angels and I think and I think becomes part of uh the Muppet Show as well. I know we're not a Charlie's Angels podcast, but I had should be no associations with Cheryl Ladd before this week as we've been preparing. So now that I've watched a little bit of Charlie's Angels, I'm I'm more confused about what it was than before I watched it. Because <laughs> yes. it's at least in all the episodes that I watched, they they go undercover into that to solve whatever case they're solving. They have to go and be in a beauty pageant or ice skate or learn to be stewardesses. Or a backers audition for a Broadway musical, which is the only episode of it that I've seen. And it's a cocktail wild. waitress. <laughs> and you don't I've understand. never seen it uh-huh. at all. But my pitch for it, if I had to pitch it based on just cultural knowledge, is Mission Impossible meets the love boat. Oh, <laughs> there is, in fact, a crossover episode, two-parter, where they go on the love boat. See? I learned today. <laughs> of course. <laughs> And in, in all the episodes that you've all seen, do they always use their real, or the characters' real names when they're supposedly undercover? Mm-hmm. They're like, this is beauty pageant contestant Chris, <laughs> who, like, if you, if there was Google, then somebody could just find out that she's... I, I think, I think possibly the people making the show thought that the audience was not smart enough to be able to, like, track them if they, if they put on different names. I mean, I, I didn't end up learning their individual names. <laughs> I know that Cheryl Ladd was Chris. Yeah, I I'm like I'm like two years too young for Charlie's Angels, uh, but I too watched a few episodes this week and what? <laughs> it's good stuff, right? Yeah, I mean it is. It's it's like campy, and I mean they're all all three of them. I, so I did grow up watching Scarecrow and Mrs. King, so I have like a lot of affection for Kate Jackson. Yeah, and then Cheryl Ladd and and the other one are are great. Like they're That's so <laughs> thank you. They're so they're so charming and. Both that and I also I watched some uh, some Wonder Woman for another recent episode, and um, what surprised me about both of them is like how dull they are, <laughs> like with like these really great performances at their center, or I shouldn't say great performances, but like um, charismatic performers at their center is what I should say. Um, and yes, quite a lot of uh, of boobs, uh, boobs <laughs> um, of revealing costumes uh, and. But like the just the the pacing of this time period was uh, something different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they're so charming that it it didn't not make me want to watch more episodes <laughs> and root for them because they're they're all so delightful. I mean, Kate Jackson was clearly like too good for Charlie's Angels. Yes, that's, and that and she's playing that. I feel like in every yeah. in every minute, she's like, "Look, I'm a way better actress than than I should be." Where Cheryl Ladd is exactly the right amount of good for Charlie's Yes, Angels. no, yeah, you're totally right. <laughs> well, I think this Muppet Show episode, this might be a good segue, maybe shows that she's a little better than she needs to be. Oh, are we talking about the Muppet Show? I mean, eventually. <laughs> There's no rush. Exciting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll get there. Why don't you get me Christy, what'd you think of yes. the episode? So yeah, so I, I went into this with no Cheryl Ladd associations at all, other than knowing that she was on Charlie's Angels. If anything, like I had seen that one episode of Charlie's Angels where they're undercover at a workshop for a musical because somebody was like, this is extremely <laughs> up your alley. But like, if anything, I have like 
like less than zero uh, <laughs> associations because one of my favorite mystery science theater episodes of all time is the movie Angels Revenge, which was knockoff yeah. Charlie's Angels. Ooh. I recommend it heartily. Oh, it, way it's, worse. Yeah. It's a it's way worse, but hilarious because it's all a bunch of uh, pretty women that you've never seen and a bunch of really famous dudes like <laughs> Jack Palance and Jim Backus and Pat Buttram. Like it's it's wild. Anyway. On a bad day. Up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all of them on a bad day. Yeah. Um, but uh, but anyway, but this episode of The Muppet Show, which is the thing we were actually talking about, is delightful. You know, I think the season is en- ending with more of a whimper than a bang. Like, it's very gentle. Mm-hmm. But I had a good time. David? Yeah, I also had less of an association with Charlotte than I maybe thought I did. Looking at her credits, Josie and the Pussycats is really the only thing I had previous experience with. Uh, so I didn't know what to expect and i came away not really having a sense of her at all like uh, she does nothing wrong like i think she's perfectly fine but she doesn't leave an impression and that's sort of true of the episode as a whole like it's it's good like there's nothing wrong with it it just didn't leave a huge impression on me michael yeah this was a lovely episode and it slipped right out of my brain it's like jello this was <laughs> this was like something very sweet and fluffy. And every time I came back to rewatch it, I was like, oh, right, there's so much to love. And then I forgot all about it again. (laughs) Um, But Cheryl Ladd seems like a delight watching her and Miss Piggy chew on the furniture and then karate chop it. Wonderful. I love it. It's it's it was a high point of the season for me. I don't think it's going to make my top 10, you know, overall, but it's weird because I, I I sort of hate all of these songs and never want to hear them <laughs> in any other context. But as performed here, they're like so perfectly Muppety. And I thought she was great. I also had no prior context for her. Um, but yeah, I think it's fantastic. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about the rest of it. Uh, Danny, you asked to go last. I can't wait. <laughs> What'd you think? I asked for this episode specifically. So when I when I was talking to David a little while ago about like coming on the show as a guest, and he asked, "Is there an episode that I want to do?" And I said, "Like, oh, I really want to be there for the Cheryl Ladd episode." And David, I don't remember if I told you why, but I will tell you now. Is it something um, about Western. That's all I remember. Something about what? Said so something something involving Western. And I don't remember if that was Western as a genre or Western as in like Western civilization. Must have been civilization. All right. So here's my explanation is like when I was in college, like stepping back in time for a minute for me, when I was in college, I majored in post-structuralist literary theory, which is basically a four-year degree in impenetrable Discordian trickster jargon, where I learned how to deconstruct rhetorical structures and like break down unstated oppositional relationships to absent signifiers. Like it's basically a secret code that was developed. Like you're a hit at parties. Yeah. Developed by people who read a lot of books that makes you sound smart. Even if you're talking complete nonsense, which is how I still use it today. I don't usually talk like that because I have a healthy (laughs) respect for other people's time, but talking like that is literally what my parents paid above market rates for me to learn how to do. And so queer theory kind of grew out of post-structuralist literary theory in the late 90s when I was really ready for it. So I was reading a lot of like queer readings of television shows and fictional characters. And so when I started talking to Muppet fans on the internet in the late 90s, I was delighted to discover that there was a disproportionately high number of queer people um, in Muppet fandom, which I think is probably still true today. 
so I had a lot of fun flirting with dudes. And then I also had a bunch of like post-structuralist thoughts about it. So in 2000, I decided I was going to write a pseudo-academic book called Gentle Frogs, Tough Pigs, A Queer History of TV's Favorite Puppet Characters, where my general thesis was that there's something like inherently gender destabilizing and queer positive about the Muppets and Jim Henson's work that queer people just kind of like naturally gravitated to. And so when I created the website Tough Pigs in 2001, like I didn't think that I was creating a Muppet fan site. That was going to be the website where I'd promote and sell my queer theory book, um, which I which I did not actually write. Uh, but that's not too the, late. Yeah, that's why the site it really is. Um, but that's why the site is <laughs> is called The World Is Not Ready Anymore. But I had like I had so much fun. So that's why it's called Tough Pigs. I had so much fun just like putting the site together that I abandoned the book and just decided like I'm just going to make a funny Muppet fan site, which was the correct choice. But in this episode, the reason why I'm talking about this is that like I was doing like textual analysis of like a lot of Muppet material. And this specific episode of The Muppet Show was especially interesting to me in the way that it breaks down these questions of gender and identity and sexuality. So I'm excited today because I finally get to talk about how interesting this episode is um, in terms of queer theory, which I'm hoping that's okay. Like I, I clearly did not ask permission it's for this, but, okay. you, were but you, have listened, you have listened to the podcast. So <laughs> yes, is, yes, that is okay. what I want to do. Excellent. Well, let's get into it. Yeah, we better. Cheryl Ladd, Cheryl Ladd, 20 seconds to curtain, Miss Ladd. Oh, thank you, Scooter. Uh, I just can't seem to get my costume off. Off? You're supposed to put it on. I know, but uh, first he takes it off and then I'll put it on. So, yep, Cheryl Ed can't seem to get her costume off of Lunch Encounter Monster, who I guess is wearing a dress. Is I didn't even catch what the costume was. I was trying to figure it out. I think it is the top, like the vest yeah. part of her big parade number. Yes, yeah, like black and white kind of checked, but like clearly not. It's like the same fabric, but clearly not the same. They're not the same size. Actual thing. They're not. Yeah. But this like it starts right from the jump with this like male coated monster wearing the female guest star's dress and kind of like like Raquel Welch, like earlier in the season, like Cheryl Ladd was specifically known as a sex symbol and a jiggle television star. And I, I think it's so interesting that, like, the very first thing that they do is steal her clothes and then dress up the lunch encounter monster in her clothes. And I think, like, monsters always in Henson's work were kind of, like, this destabilizing force of, like, just breaking all of the boundaries of what people could do is, like, all of a sudden you have a monster come in and eat people. It's significant for me. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. Makes sense. I have a lot of thoughts about yeah. this, specifically this cold open. <laughs> And I just generally love seeing the Lunch Counter Monster every time I get a chance. Oh, yeah. It's a cool looking puppet. I have weird face blindness for Lunch Counter Monster. <laughs> like, I just, I never recognize him. Yeah. Her, them. I never <laughs> recognize them. <laughs> weird. Every time. I'm just like, and there's a monster. And then, like, I see in the outline, it's Lunch Counter Monster for the podcast. I'm like, oh, yeah. I have that one. with Gorgon Heap. Or I, I did for a very long time. And now I, now I remember that I have a face blindness for Gorgon Heaps. And now when I see him, I'm like, oh yeah, that's the one I can never remember. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Statler and Waldorf have a moment during the theme song. Hey, would you guys be quiet? We're trying to heckle up here. <laughs> now that we're at the end of the season, I think it's interesting how many of these literal interstitial bits have been Statler and Waldorf, even though at the beginning of the season, it seemed like they were taking the advantage of the new season to 
be more flexible with the space. We got some mm. backstage bits with Beauregard or, or Gonzo or whatever. Uh, and it's a little bit of a disappointment that, uh, not that I don't like Statler and Waldorf, but, uh, you know, we, we got a taste of something more creative, but only a taste. Mm. I'm not mad about it. I'm always happy to see them. All right. Gonzo blows his trumpet. It sounds like a bell ringing. You can decide whether it sounds to you like a telephone, which is what the wiki says, or an alarm clock, which is what the captions say. It sounds like all those things. Yeah, that, yeah it's a that sounds like buzzer. that sounds like an alarm clock. That just, that's not a telephone at all. The telephone. In nineteen seventy nine that was a telephone. It was the past. It was telephone. I mean I hear doorbell now that you say doorbell. Doorbell? What doorbell sounds like that? An apartment doorbell. Can you play that clip again? I lived in an apartment in nineteen seventy nine. It's a very specific kind that's of mechanism. That's alarm clock. Where it's where you know when the electric current is turned on, it creates like a vibrating hammer that beats the bell, and it's the same mechanism that was in certain phones and certain alarm clocks. And yes, certain and yes, kinds certain of doorbells. Doorbells. Uh, I need so to. I need to go. Things. I need to go fix this on the wiki. If it says telephone on the wiki, I gotta go do something about that. All right, let's go backstage. Yeah, I'm up at your backstage. Okay, so this week backstage, uh, Fozzie is attempting to mature. As, as an adult bear. Uh, I've been uh, reading a book here on self-improvement. Yeah. And it says, uh, it says uh, I should ask my boss, that's you, uh, to make a list of my good points and my bad points. Oh, Fonzie, you don't want me to do that. Oh, but Kermit, I do. You see, it will help me to grow into a more mature and adult bear. <laughs> well... Okay, if you really want me to. Oh, thank you, Kermit. Thank you. I want to note that the piano that we're hearing is Rolf on stage. So we're looking at them at Kermit's desk backstage. And I like knowing what's happening on stage yeah. while I they're chatting. That. It's really cute. Rolf is like, all right, I'm going on for my piano piece. <laughs> and also there's a bust of Beethoven that's just sitting on Kermit's desk yeah. this whole episode. We don't know. It's clearly not there to be part of Rolf's bit. It's just hanging out, yeah, and making snide comments to people. We'll come. We'll come back to them. Him, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> Fozzie's kind of going through it this season, right? Like he went to therapy, and now he's reading a self improvement book. Yeah, Raquel Welch made a man out of him. Yeah, <laughs> or made a bear out of him. It feels like it, that feels like kind of a third. Like first season, I don't think he had any kind of like self consciousness about himself at all. Yeah, his sincere desire for growth is really impressive. Yeah. <laughs> when you take Inspiring. it in with the totality of, you know, who Fozzie is. It's a shame that for all of his good intentions, it doesn't seem like he's really changing. No, it never works. But E for effort, Fozzie. Yes. This is also the season that we've learned quite a bit about human resources and management <laughs> at the Muppet Show. And uh, no annual reviews, apparently. <laughs> Not a thing that's ever crossed Kermit's mind. No, you have to go and read a book. And then ask, you have to ask, ask for, for the it. meeting. Yeah. yeah. I've had jobs like that. Yeah, well. Yeah. So Fozzie encourages Kermit to be honest, brutally honest, but gentle. Hmm. He, later in the episode, he comes back and he makes the mistake of peeking at Kermit's notes. Kermit has not completed the list, but he has a little notepad. Oh, no. I'm not that. Kermit. Look at this. Look. I don't believe this. 
okay, sometimes I may be a little... Oh, come on, not this. Oh, uh, 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 Fozzie, I think I better explain. No, no, you no, see, okay. oh, no, come on, it's okay, it's okay. I can understand how you might think that I have these bad points. Oh, well, actually, that list is your good points. Oh. Mm -hmm. Also, when he says, look at this, he's showing the list to the bust of Beethoven. <laughs> like, you'll never believe this. <laughs> it's so cute. And every time he walks by the bust of Beethoven, and every time he walks by him, he's like, oh, excuse me. <laughs> Just talks <laughs> yes. to the bust of Beethoven. It's really cute. And if you wanted to make a similar list, you could do it in your very own Muppeturgy brand notebook. Available now. Muppeturgy.com. <laughs> ooh, ooh. Which one would you get if it's to write down the good and bad points of your direct reports? Well, in fact, I already... <laughs> Do that in one that says what and get out of show business. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Any of my direct reports for listening, I don't actually <laughs> do that in that notebook. Although I do have that notebook. Oh, do you make do your direct support. reports? Do you make your direct reports listen to your podcast? Make them. They don't make them. They do it because <laughs> they love it. One of them has been a guest on the show. <laughs> I'm friends with two of them. Like I'm. All right. I'm gonna look in your notebook and tell them what you said. It's a small, small world. As we're talking about the bust of Beethoven, I just need to say that looking at it in the combination of both in close-up, which I don't think we've seen before, and also mm. HD, that is not kind to this particular puppet. Didn't mm. bother me. Oh, it just it it the illusion of it being anything other than foam is totally gone. It feels appropriate for a curmudgeonly bust of Beethoven to be very imperfect. Mm. Sure. She has one wonky eye. <laughs> Yeah, and a wonky jaw. Can, can we hear the Flintstone-esque little thing that he says about being a bust of Beethoven? If I remember my history, Beethoven was supposed to be deaf. I'm not Beethoven, dummy. I'm a bust of Beethoven. Of course. It's a job. You gotta do something for a living, and I'm a bust of Beethoven. Any more questions? He's so surly. I love him. <laughs> it raises interesting questions about the difference between Muppet job and Muppet identity. <laughs> that is it's that is one of my favorite jokes. Like, I have a lot of favorite Muppet show jokes, but that is definitely one of them. Because, like, if you're a Muppet and you look like that, yeah. what do else you have other be? job opportunities? Right? Like, could he have been something else? <laughs> I mean, this does, this is one of those, like, this is my kind of theoretical thing, but, like, it's one of these moments where there's this lovely like reshifting of identity where things both are and aren't what they seem at the same time, which I think is like, you know, for the Muppets, like you didn't see this kind of joke in the Muppet Valentine show where it's like, this is a dog and he does dog things the whole time. And, and by now, like you can actually do, I think is like a kind of more complex joke, like a more intelligent joke that I think they kind of like worked up to through like several years of Muppet Show wackiness. Does that help to address the question that sometimes comes up in Muppet Show episodes of like things that happen on stage, but then they're also happening off stage? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that answers some questions that I've had. <laughs> well, you mean, and also just like the times when like they're doing something backstage and it's okay that nothing is happening on stage because we're doing the... That remains an unanswered <laughs> question. We're doing with the Valerie We'll Harper. do this one just for us. Yeah. This is making me think about something I hadn't occurred to me. Later on, there's a moment where um, Cheryl Ladd has a dummy, like a sparring dummy, uh, which is just a dummy, but it could be a Muppet. Everybody's got to do something for a little <laughs> yeah, There's Cheryl no Ladd's reason. Dummy. For it's, it's like this. There was this tweet a few years ago that went viral that like if if one of the toys in Toy Story died, the humans would never know and would just keep oh. playing with it. 
Oh. Right? So Jeez. it's sort of like that. Like that dummy could be a Muppet and could be alive. Could be but, a it's, dead but, Muppet. but it's but it's not. Like it's it's very it's very clearly not. It's just a dummy. But like that line is really blurry. Yeah. Where like an object an object that's made of fabric and stuffing could be Yeah. Well, you, in one episode, live. the wardrobe is very much a Muppet. In, in <laughs> right. another, it's a set piece. Right. Yeah. Fozzie has a teddy bear. Like these are all like weird little <laughs> little things. Fozzie also builds a puppet. Yeah. You but live. You just live in this bear. world where like anything could possibly be alive and sentient. It's the dark purgatory of the sitcom reset. The Fozzie bit is billed as the plot of this episode, even though it only kind of lasts for like two scenes, a couple of backstage segments, yeah. and then we never hear about it again. There's no follow up. We don't know if Fozzie took this feedback and then uh, used it as the gift that feedback is. <laughs> well, it kind of like it passes off to Gonzo is the weird thing that there's kind of like these. Are, it's actually a, an episode that has sort of two running storylines. That's it's just you know the yeah. Fozzie one, and then it kind of peters out, and then Gonzo picks it up, and then that's the the storyline for the rest of the episode. Yeah, Fozzie wanders away from Kermit's desk, <laughs> and then a few minutes later, Gonzo wanders over. Yeah, <laughs> saying that he's here for his hypnotism act, and Kermit's like, "We're not doing that. That's terrible." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is also happening backstage this week. Gonzo has a brood of chickens under his sway. They are literally swaying. <laughs> uh, they're hypnotized. They have teeny tiny pupils. Uh, they're swaying back and forth as Gonzo kind of conducts them and tells them what to do. Hypnotized chickens? Yes, they're in my power. <laughs> Gonzo, I, I don't believe this. Oh, sure. See, I hypnotize them and then I can get them to do anything I want. All of my sexual assault red flags went up at the yep. scene with <laughs> the sight of a flock of hypnotized chickens and thrall the Gonzo on a set that is lit with bisexual lighting. <laughs> I totally understand the red flags, but what he's actually asking to do is like change their identity. And so these are now chickens who believe that they're dogs. And it, it feels like this, like my whole kind of theory about this is, is that the Muppets kind of open up this space as Gonzo always does for like other modes of identity and ways of being in the world. I recently saw on Facebook, there's a self-identified gay Muppet fan who posts on Facebook and he gets really bothered by queer readings of like Gonzo specifically around like the transgender baby Gonzo thing or like Ernie and Bert or whatever. Oh, I know who this is. <laughs> I'm not. I, no, I want to know who it is. But I, I have seen him mount this curious defense of Gonzo as heterosexual and saying like, no, he's not gay. He's a weirdo, which I think like spectacularly misses the entire point of Gonzo as a character, as well as the entire point of being gay. Like it's just like a person who's just like born with no sense of camp. Like in the Steve Martin episode, Gonzo has this dancing cheese act and he tells Kermit that the cheese is named Yolanda. Cause it would look weird if he was dancing with a male cheese. And if you, if you look at that and you say, Okay, but that establishes canonically that that is a literal, straightforward expression of heterosexuality. Like, you're not allowed to watch the Muppets anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I I hate to be judgmental like this, but like, you need to go and think about what you've done. Like, you need to understand Gonzo a little bit better than what that is. So that's kind of that is how I see Gonzo here is like kind of like opening the space where it is okay for chickens to be dogs. It is okay for him not to have a species. Etc. 
I mean, if it weren't for how creepy that is when Gonzo says he can make the chickens do anything he wants. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the next line is animal impressions. Like, I, I cut it to make it creepy. I cut the clip to make it creepy. Yeah. But yes. Yeah. Anything I want. Well, like what? Animal impressions. Yeah. Like, that's. Yes. I, I made a choice. <laughs> yeah. Also, so does that mean that he's yeah. asking them to believe their dogs or is he asking them to bark like dogs? Well, when he says sick him, he, yeah, he wants they... them to attack dog yeah. Kermit. And there's like a, a and there's one chicken kind of like at the end who's like, Rrr. I thought she meows. <laughs> oh no, you're she right. Yeah, no, she meows. Yeah, she meows when when so they're all the same. Like dogs are mean and and right. cats are nice in this in this paradigm. Which that's no. how it works. Oh well, this this universe yeah. is totally upside down. <laughs> yeah, this right. is um, yeah, because the response at to, its to, finest. To, uh, Kermit gets them to calm down and and she meows. But this is also a very seventies trope of and it uh, though it's still I just listened to a podcast about this. I'll have to find it. It's still a thing, like the hypnotist act. Oh yeah, you know, like the like the Vegas style. I think um, there was one off Broadway this year. So that's that's kind of what what they're riffing on. Uh, yeah, and actually, it's like the like the really traditional use of that trope is to make people cluck like a chicken. Like you right. you hypnotize people and then you make them cluck like a chicken. And so the joke here is that like we do that to chickens. It'd be funny if he hypnotized them to think they were chickens, <laughs> <laughs> and they made like real chicken sounds instead of Muppet chicken sounds. That that would further confuse this whole subversion deal that we're doing. You know what's funny. This is the only piece of this episode that was deeply familiar to me. It's on one of those VHS compilations. It yes, just seems like an too. odd one to isolate. But. Well, because it works in isolation. And the part that yeah. I think was yeah. on the tape didn't include the chickens. I think it was just the Gonzo Statler World War. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. So let's talk about that bit. Yes. <laughs> um, Gonzo does manage to make it on stage for his hypnotism act. Uh, it requires a volunteer and Gonzo gets snow takers. <laughs> to regret this we intend to <laughs> i just don't understand you people immortality is up for grabs <laughs> but you don't deserve it no but you do <laughs> what a terrific idea i'll hypnotize myself i'll go down in history so gonzo proceeds to whip out a very snazzy little hand mirror it's mm-hmm. really cute he hypnotizes himself which enables him to march over to this five thousand pound weight that's dangling from the ceiling he says release the ropes and the rope just uh slides down so you can sort of see that the weight is balanced on gonzo's little finger and then he snaps which is the cue for his hypnosis to end he comes out of it and then he gets squashed down under this gigantic weight. Hmm. So he's this tiny little nub of a gonzo on the floor and he just wisecracks from the floor for the rest of the episode. Super cute. It's it's cute, and disturbing horrifying. and cute. Yeah. All the things. Yeah. In the way that gonzo should always be. Yeah. I mean, he's alive. He seems he's fine. fine. He's just flat. He's been through worse. Yeah. He's gone from the purple tuxedo to this like similarly purple, but more like lavender and shiny tuxedo it's i don't know if they they built this for this episode because they had something matching that they could squish i don't know it's nice it's nice there's a couple really nice bits of puppetry uh in this that i noticed when the weight is released um gonzo's you know gonzo's holding it up with his arm but it's it's being held by a rope and so when the rope is released um he just like he shakes his arm just the tiniest bit, um, sort of to indicate that the weight has shifted, which is so subtle and so good. Um, and then when he snaps his fingers, obviously he can't snap his fingers, but he 
he moves his arm in this way and there's a sound effect obviously but it it's just like subtle and like they didn't need to do that but it sells it really nicely and when he's squished they do that thing we've seen before where he's having a conversation with kermit um, and they're two totally different shots they're cutting from kermit at his desk looking down to gonzo elsewhere on the floor but it's you know the editing is really nice and it just sells the the height and the illusion really well i i just love when they do stuff like that they also make really great use out of gonzo's eyelid mechanism hmm. for this when he hypnotizes himself and he he says let your mind go blank and his eyelids go really wide and then he says your eyes are getting heavy and they get heavy and then he does this little zombie march when he walks over to the weight as as though he's hypnotized it's it's all very cute and really nicely done. You believe that he is both the hypnotized and the hypnotizer. Dave Goals, good at his job. Yeah. Hey, Kermit! It went terrific! <laughs> he says it went terrific, but I know how he really feels. How's that? About so high. <laughs> as long as we're backstage, I just want to point out my favorite Muppet of the day. We, we sometimes hear this off-screen stage hand when Kermit is trying to make mm. an intro. And I just, I love this voice. I love, I love this character, even though I've never met him. But right now it's time for our closing number. Are we ready back there? Who wants to know? <laughs> I do. Oh, 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 yeah. Sorry, Bart. You've never met Cookie Monster? <laughs> I don't think I've met Cookie Monster. <laughs> Now it's time to talk about Wav, Two Wav, <laughs> or maybe just some songs. <laughs> so on and on will it always be. sped up thing makes me laugh every single time so this is a song called true love it is a cole porter song from 1956 it was uh written for the movie high society in which it is sung by uh bing crosby man there should there must have been like mega bing crosby fans in the muppet writers room i think it's just that bing crosby was such an omnipresent part of american culture for the first half of the 20th century i guess but they tend to go Pretty deep into the well. Anyway, Bing Crosby and... Should have stayed deep in the well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bing Crosby and uh, Grace Kelly sang this in the movie, though it was mostly Bing. And it was uh, number three on Billboard's Most Played by Disc Jockeys chart uh, Mm -hmm. in 1956. And that was one of the three charts that were the precursors that got folded into the hot 100 which started in 1958 the other two were most played in jukeboxes and bestsellers in stores uh, so this song was cole porter's last big hit or at least i would consider that that depends on your feelings about the song come to the supermarket mm-hmm. and it was recorded by several uh, friends of the muppets including 
noted daughter of noted Joe Raposo stan, Frank Sinatra, Nancy Sinatra. <laughs> uh, and Elton John uh, recorded it in, I believe, the late 90s, early 2000s uh, as a duet with Kiki D. Hmm. And also, I found out that Elvis did this, which shocked me. He did? I had no idea that Elvis recorded any Cole Porter. Yeah. Huh. I was surprised to find out this was Cole Porter, because I was sure this was some Moist FM nonsense. Um, <laughs> instead of this some Cole Porter nonsense. Um, I mean, but it is also like a song Porter. that sounds like a yawn. Like, it just... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's so... I, I mean, I they, are, they are openly making fun of the song. They are, yes. I, I just expect better of Cole Porter, I guess. Um, yeah. And, and it's, this is not good. <laughs> so should we explain what we're looking at? I suppose. Yes. Uh, it's Miss Piggy and Link Hogthrob kind of dressed for the jungle. Link is wearing a loincloth, but also a leisured yeah. 70s shirt over the line. He seems to have shaved his chest since we saw him last. No, there there is a big tuft of blonde hair. Is there? Sticking out. Yeah, believe okay. me, as, as our resident Link Hogthrob <laughs> chest hair <laughs> expert. Enthusiast. <laughs> but it, it does is- seem like there's less of it than we have seen in other previous Link chest hair experiences. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a, it's a Tarzan, right? He's Tarzan and yeah, he's Jane, yeah. but he is wearing a sh- shirt it's weird sure. yeah. yeah that is that's the thing that i thought was really funny that like the thing about tarzan is that he wears <laughs> that little loincloth but then he has like the body um that you see and and so i just thought it was really funny that like they just decided that link was not he was he was not going to do that i wonder if that's just because if you show too much of link's body he stops <laughs> he like puppet. yeah yeah like then, then there's a question of like, does he have nipples? How many nipples does he have? He's a pig. Is it like a whole series of nipples? Like better to just show, you know, a little bit of chest. This is why, this is why pigs don't, uh, don't get big roles in superhero blockbusters these days. Mm. I also love that even the jungle piggy has her lavender gloves on. Yeah. Yeah. She's prepared for all eventualities. Uh, we should probably say that that part where the song like speeds up and turns into like a little razzle dazzle, that is not in the original arrangement of this song. What? And it is so out of left field here. Like there's no real reason for it. None of it makes sense. Like that, I mean, would you rather just watch Piggy and Link do their moist FM thing? No, but I just don't understand like the story that this sketch is telling. Like they're in love on a honeymoon in the jungle. Yeah. And then eventually the jungle animals, there are just too many of them and they get in their way and Piggy's feeling crowded. That that is the ultimate story. But like why in the middle Okay, I got this. I got this. Don't worry about great. it. Okay. I'm coming in. I'm coming in with my post structuralism again. Um, You're gonna swing in Tarzan style. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Like at this point, I don't do I have to explain like the queer reading of this as like a performance of heteronormativity? No, I think that's pretty clear. I mean, that's yeah, that's yeah. Link at all times. Yeah, obviously. That's yeah, text. exactly. That that's like they're singing this super sappy song that is clearly not supposed to be like taken as for one thing, just because we know because this is a weird thing that we know that like no, Piggy has a different person that she's in love with, but also just like in general that Miss Piggy is like the most famous long form drag performance in history and you mean like frank around- oz or piggy herself miss piggy yeah. Okay. yeah and and because because frank oz and then and then you know it's not like uh when frank oz stopped it you know there started to be a, a female performer right, that would right. it 
kind of would ruin like the whole thing of what she is, which is a, which is a drag character um, who is, you know, I think you can see um, all of the Miss Piggy and Kermit dynamic over, you know, several years as being essentially the story of like a drag queen, like wearing down the resistance of a heterosexual dude until he like gets to the point where um, he's okay and wants to marry her. And so like, that's what's going on. I think in the song is that this is actually like, it's a parody of a love story of like a love song with this, with this song that's super boring. Uh, And then here's this like drag character and, and Link is basically like a drag character for masculinity as well. Just like obviously like trying to present as the most masculine guy, which then, you know, underneath, not even very far underneath that we know that he's just kind of like a, a big sop. And so then, and so I think like the jungle animals are coming in. It's just like, we are tired of these people. <laughs> Like, it's a boring song. These are, you know, if, if we were supposed to take these people at all seriously, uh, these would be uh, incredibly boring people. And so it's just like the jungle just intrudes and kind of says, no, this is not okay. We can't have this on, on television right now. I guess that is a helpful response to my, my discomfort with seeing Piggy and Link together. Because it's it's not just that you know, I would rather see her doing a number with Kermit. It's more that they, this isn't going to, this is never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if you're saying that it's a mockery and a performance, then that, that is what I feel. Yeah. That's a good framing. I'll buy it. I like them together in like the, the Muppet show meta plot, which, Again, like- which we haven't seen a ton of yet. Right. But like the, in addition to what Danny is saying that they're like, cause Kermit is not on stage very much. Right. So mm. right. The, Piggy and Link are the performers who are meant to be together on stage, uh, but we know that they hate each other, or we know that she hates him at least, right? We see that in um, not meant to be in the like in the world of pigs in space, where like they're coworkers who like in the world of the Muppet Show banter and dislike each other. Yeah, in the world of the Muppet Show, they are coworkers and they are they make logical sense. He's the leading man. Yeah, Yeah. he's not really the leading man, but like they make logical sense as performers who would be who would be paired together often. Mm -hmm. And whenever they are, it's a disaster in no small part because she loathes him. (laughs) And I like that as a, as a, as a running, uh, a running plot that, that mostly so far has played out in pigs in space, but I don't, I don't object to seeing it here. And, and I would like to see it maybe with a better song next time, but you know, I I think it's a, it's a, it's a good joke for me. I, I don't really get tired of it. Me Waldorf, you Statler. (laughs) No, you Waldorf, me sick. That was the best they could do. I know, really. Yeah. So for something completely different, Cheryl Ladd and the Clodhoppers take us to New Orleans. Hey, Coon, give me some air. I got some rhythm to spare. We'll all swing high. Swing low. Everybody's rocking to and four. It ain't fast. So this is a a delightful little ditty called uh, South Rampart Street Parade. And I went down a bit of a rabbit hole with this because the music is by Bob Haggart and Ray Boddock, uh, which are names that if you're really, really paying close attention, 
to our show, you'll remember, because they wrote Big Noise from Winnetka, mm. which we heard a while back. But the lyrics are by Steve Allen. And Steve Allen was a, a fixture of 50s, 60s, 70s TV. And he was born in 1921, and the song was from 1937. So I'm assuming that he added these lyrics a lot later. The original version was by Bob Crosby and his orchestra, uh, and it was an instrumental. And it's worth looking up. It slaps hard. Bob Crosby, brother of Bing Crosby, right? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. Just to tie that back in. Another yeah. Crosby. Too many Crosbys on the dance floor. Um, Too many Crosbys. Chrissy mentioned Steve Allen, and I just wanted to fill in a little more details. I, we may have talked about him before because he does you know, loom large in, in this era of songwriting and television, but uh, he's less familiar, I think, to listeners today. So he was, I, I think, probably most famously the co-creator and the first host of The Tonight Show, but he essentially invented late-night TV as a genre as we know it today, uh, or like the late-night talk show. But as a songwriter, he also wrote The Standard, This Could Be the Start of Something Big, and the theme for Picnic, and a whole bunch of other songs that uh, have persisted over the years. And also, I found out that he was the creator of that show, Meeting of the Minds, that we talked about earlier this season, which is the one that had actors as various historical figures appearing huh. together on a panel format talk show on PBS. I don't oh, yeah. remember when that came up, but... Uh, as historical figures? Yes. Yeah, it was, it was real weird. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I never knew about that. We can thank Steve Allen for that. Thanks, Steve Allen. I know Steve Allen primarily as a fixture on mid-century panel game shows. Well, and he also has... That tracks. He is, um, he's important to the whole story of Jim Henson. Because that and that was their first big break, that, that um, Henson was on... You know, they were doing like Sam and Friends on WRC like local programming in, in Washington, D.C. And then Steve Allen heard about it, I think, and saw them. And then brought, like, Henson and the Muppets to come and do some stuff on The Tonight Show. And that was, like, their first big national break. He was, I think, like, a big a big supporter of Henson. So Rampart Street is a street in New Orleans, as you probably could have guessed from the, the <laughs> Dixielandness of it all. Yeah, and uh, Cheryl Ladd is dressed... Pretty much in a costume almost identical to Sylvester Stallone's bird in a gilded cage costume. Oh, he is. Yeah. You, you think they recycled the the sleeve garters? The sleeve garters, yeah. When, now that I know what they're called. <laughs> so I, I didn't know this song prior to hearing it here, but get big Cy Coleman vibes from it. And not just because it's staged like a Bob Fosse number. I mean, it's staged like a very specific, <laughs> I have ripped off a... <laughs> a bossy number from Sweet Charity. Step for step, Norman Mean. <laughs> yeah. Aww. I mean, I loved it. I loved it. But yeah, it's uh, it's really got Sweet Charity written all over it. I, I kind of want to do a side-by-side yeah. comparison, and I might Ooh. later look for it in the show notes. I also might not, so don't look that hard. I mean, do you think that that might, it was actually like an inspiration? I, it, ha- it has, it has to be. I mean, that, that, opening, oh, that really? opening pose when the curtain, the curtain opens is. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, it's also not like that's a super unique thing, but I also think, mm-hmm. you know, at this moment in time, the movie With the was. The bowler not at hat old. and the hand isolations, like, it's very. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and like, I'm a brass band is, you know, uh, accompanied by a brass band. Like, it's, it's, right. it's this. But, you know, steal from the best. Yeah. And it's a ton of fun. I mean, She's got a band of clodhoppers, <laughs> whom you may remember from the Valerie Harper episode. There are fewer clodhoppers here than there, right? 
I think so. And they're also yeah. really well used here. Like I, yeah. I didn't find them the least bit creepy in this context. Yeah. I need to put in a word for Timmy monster. Please. Oh, yeah. I just, we haven't mentioned him. I, I love him in this. I don't have like mm-hmm. a thing, but like, he's just so cute coming in. And so like Timmy monster comes like, I think in the clip, it kind of ended with her going, Rah! yeah, like, that and that's because, yeah. yeah, that's because like, here comes this big, bizarre looking like blue and green shaggy monster with a bowler hat on who like comes and dances with her and like actually does some steps and like obviously yeah they're doing lifts yeah there he seems like a good dance partner and like so there's some things that that he can't do so there's like a couple of places where like like the two of them have the same step and then he kind of like holds while she does something complicated with her feet that like timmy monster clearly cannot do um but it's like up to that moment he could do it and the thing that i really like is there's a couple of times during the number when Cheryl Ladd like looks at him and then does a take to the audience. Um, and the first time she's kind of like, she kind of gives him the hairy eyeball and then she looks at the audience and kind of shakes her head. And then later in the song, he has like a little soft shoe moment. And she, and it, again, like she looks at him and then she does this take to the audience and she's like, well, okay then I guess he's pretty good. Like, it, I just think that that is this really fun little, uh, like through line for the whole for the whole number is Timmy Monster kind of like proving himself as a dance partner. Such a cutie. It's really cute. Am I the only one who was getting Olivia Newton John's Wednesday matinee alternate vibes from <laughs> Cheryl Ad? <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because I listened to Cheryl's first album and my reaction was, oh, this is sort of Olivia Newton John without that little extra something. So that that is that is definitely part of her vibe. I mean, she's great in this number. She's very present and charismatic. And even though there are clodhoppers and Timmy Monster happening, like you just want to look at her face. Yeah, she actually stands out. Yeah. So it's a good number. This week's UK spot is maybe my least favorite UK spot of all time. Yeah, really? Wowzers. Yeah. It's also Woof. not on Disney Plus, so uh, there's, there's any old iron, and then there's swarms. Right. Uh, so this is not on Disney Plus. Uh, it's on YouTube. Uh, it you, you don't ha- you don't have to watch it, <laughs> but if you want to, it'll be on our website. But you have to listen to a clip of it. Yeah. You get Scooter in a really cute outfit. You do. I don't. I don't actually hate this, but uh, but here's here's a clip. There's a new sound, the newest sound around, the strangest sound that you have ever heard. Not like a wild boar or a jungle lion's roar. It isn't like the cry of any bird. But there's a new sound, it's deep down in the ground. And everyone who listens to it squirms because it's new, new sound. So deep down in the ground is the sound that's made by worms. There's a new sound. Look, I just hate a one chord <laughs> song. I, yeah. I and only I hate, two notes. Ugh. Even just one more note would have helped. Also, those ugh. are all of the lyrics. The whole thing just repeats and yeah, goes, it that, goes like, up a times. tone, right? But like yeah. it just it goes up and gets faster. Going and, Yeah. And going ugh. like the only ugh. reason I don't hate it is because it's the Muppet Show and it's Scooter and there are some cute worms. Like there's no other context in which I would ever enjoy it. Like you couldn't even like write another verse about the worms. Like that's it. That's the whole thing. I don't understand. Please, Christy, help me understand. Tell me about this song. So, so this song, uh, I, I was at least pleased to learn is intentionally bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a relief. Oh yeah. yeah. No, you don't, you don't get this bad just by accident. Oh, sure. You yeah. do. You gotta, <laughs> so, you gotta really work at it. 
your practice. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so it's called There's a New Sound, and it w- was originally performed by Tony Borello. It was written by Tony Borello and Tom Murray in 1953. And they had realized that there was a trend of uh, bad novelty singles. Mm. And so they were like, we're going to cash in on this. So <laughs> it was uh, the one and only single released by their label, Horrible Records. <laughs> And the B-side of it was a song called Fish, recorded by uh, Leona Anderson, who was a silent film actress who was having a career revival as the world's most horrible singer. Oh, dear. And uh, she later put out an album called Music to Suffer By. <laughs> I, li- I listened to a little bit of it. I, I mean, was good. You-, you do you. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's a lot. Did Tony Borello do anything else? He was a, a jazz pianist, I believe, is his like oh, primary career. Yeah. Uh, on the record label for the single, uh, it's this is vocal question mark with monotone calliope. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I have to share this uh, beautiful gem from the Wikipedia entry about this song. When Billboard magazine reviewed the single, it commented. A weird one. The new sound is the sound made by worms. Strange sound effects go with nonsense lyric. It's a studied attempt to be as screwy as possible. Kian Sabe. For <laughs> the flip side, Fish, Billboard's review was, same comment. <laughs> uh, in the version that's released digitally, there is a third track, which is called Rats in My Room, but I've not listened to it. Rats <laughs> <laughs> in my room. <sighs> well, so I I especially hate this song, and I think like anybody, anyone who was a Mabu fan in 1978 hates this song, because um, it was on the second Mabucho record. Sure was. Yes, that's how I know it. Yeah, the Mabucho too, which is a fantastic record, which I I listen to again and again. It's but this is the number. It's the third song on the is third track on the on the on side A. There's like the Mabucho theme. And then there's Babyface sung by chickens, which is fantastic. And then there's a there's a new sound um, with Scooter, which like then you have to get up and move the needle so that you don't have to <laughs> you just like pick it up and then like put it down for the next track. Because any charm that this song has comes from the visuals. Yeah. Putting it on a record is just evil. And yeah, and and because it was a UK spot, like as far as I was concerned, it's not even from the Muppet Show. I was like, what is this? I I had watched every single episode a billion times, as many times as I could. Uh, and I didn't know this random song. So I thought it was just something evil that they did, that Scooter did to inflict upon us for the album. So I just had to like skip past it. And then, you know, later on, it's happy feet. So everything's okay. <laughs> so this song sent me down a little bit of a rabbit hole uh, of fact checking. So I would like to share some things that I've learned. First of all, lions do not live in jungles. There's no such thing as a jungle lion. Uh, according to BBC Earth, their habitats include scrubland, grasslands, savannas, and rocky hills, but not jungles. So these worms do not sound like a jungle lion's roar because nothing does. Correct. Second, earthworms do not actually make sounds, except for those produced by the movement of their bodies against the earth around them. However, according to Science Magazine, sponge-dwelling worms may be one of the noisiest animals in the sea. And we'll include that article in the show notes. Yeah, thanks for not bringing a clip. (laughs) 
However, I was curious about that sound that is produced by Earthworm's bodies. Mm-hmm. And in 2014, Wired Magazine's Absurd Creature of the Week column reported on a six-foot-long earthworm that made a sound akin nope. to a gurgling bathtub as it burrowed through the wet mud in which it made its home. Okay. And yes, that article, which does include a picture of the six-foot-long nope. earthworm, <laughs> will be in the show notes as well. Okay, we've all nope. seen been all over We've that. all seen Dune. We know how this goes. <laughs> <sighs> gross. Gross. Also gross. Uh, this was not the first iteration of this uh, from Henson and Co. It appeared as an early Salmon Friends bit with a puppet that was made from the skull of a squirrel. Oh, gross. Sure. Yeah. And like... So, I mean, <laughs> you say that, but that's just the skull of a squirrel, right? Like, that's just I mean, somebody with a skull of a squirrel to... on their hand, right? Like, what yeah. Is... I, okay. I mean, they might have sewed a body onto it or something. I like... guess so. But I, I, I love this quote from Jim, though. He, uh, he says, so we used it to lip sync to this terrible song called There's a New Sound. It has only one chord and it would drive people crazy. I was convinced no one else at the station ever watched the show because there was never a complaint or an attempt at censorship of any kind. <laughs> <laughs> God, can you imagine like watching TV in like the 50s and seeing a like, squirrel skull singing no. this horrible song? Well, I and like that idea. It didn't appear out of nowhere, you know? Like, right? I do like that idea, though, of, like, a, an animal skull, like, singing the song makes so much more sense than, like, Scooter in a minor outfit. <laughs> By the way, if you have not listened to the original version of the song, which we will include on our Spotify playlist of Muppeturgy songs, uh, it is so much less pleasant than Scooter's version. <laughs> oh. I'll leave that to your imaginations for now. Yeah. We'll not... Yeah. Plug that in here. Let's please uh, cleanse the palate uh, <laughs> immediately with some uh, gender essentialism. You know what I admire most about you? Well, <clears throat> I, uh, I'd like to guess. <laughs> um, my big blue eyes, my beautiful blonde hair, my <clears throat> sylph-like figure. Nope, your chops. <laughs> what? Your chops, your oh, karate no, chops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. really super. I've seen you in action. Well, I've seen you deck a few baddies yourself. <laughs> After all, we have to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. We are just helpless girls. Mm-hmm. When men say I'm cute and funny. <laughs> but pearls, I just laugh it up like... I flip when the balance is in the tower. I dream over With a pound and a half of cream upon his face. What? <laughs> I love this so much. Yeah. Yeah, this is my favorite bit in the entire episode. So this is uh, I Enjoy Being a Girl, which is a Rogers and Hammerstein song. It's from the musical Flower Drum Song from 1958. It was originated in that show by Pat Suzuki, who's still alive as of now, which I found surprising. <laughs> now you've jinxed it. <laughs> I mean, probably. Uh, as, of I said, as of now. Uh, yeah. She's in her 90s, um, <laughs> but she's still around. And yeah. I, for as problematic as this song is, sort of, mm-hmm. I I often point to this song as 
an example of what Rodgers and Hammerstein brought to each other. There's that famous quote from Stephen Sondheim about how he said, you know, Oscar Hammerstein was a man of limited talent and infinite soul. And Richard Rodgers was a man of uh, infinite talent and limited soul. (laughs) Yowza. Yeah. It's it's a harsh burn, but. But not inaccurate. (laughs) But not inaccurate. And what, what the melody does to elevate these words Mm. I think is extraordinary. <laughs> so catchy. It's been stuck in my head yeah. all day. So like, catchy. It's so problematic. Please stop. It's, but it's, it's catchy and it's propulsive and mm. it's very assertive. But it also has a wink to it. Like it's, yeah, it, is, it's, it is not, it is not supposed to be taken straightforward, not in this original context and not really in any context that it's ever been put in since. Yeah. Except the Sesame Street iteration of it. Which is That's weird. Like just straight up mm. gender essentialist. Oh, those boys are having so much fun playing football, but we don't need that. Oof. We're girls. Yeah. We're delicate. Yeah. Let's play dress up. Well, before we get too far away, I just want to say a word about Flower Drum Song. Please do. Because although it is considered sort of a B tier Rodgers and Hammerstein show and movie, it is uh, pretty important in the history of musical theater as the first show to tell an Asian American story with a cast made up primarily but not exclusively of Asian American actors. And although the musical was written by three white guys, uh, in addition to Roger and Hammerstein, Joseph Fields, brother of Dorothy, co-wrote the book with Oscar, uh, it is based on a novel by Chinese-American author CYU. The novel is great. It holds up. Mm. It's it's much darker than the musical, but it's uh, it's a good read. I recommend it. And it has been revised. It's it's not done very much, but if you if you see it now, you're not seeing that, that book. Well, you're both seeing. versions are available, so you ah. might... You might see the original version, or you might see the revised you are, You are more likely to see the uh, revised by uh, an actual Chinese-American person. Book. Mm. Also, I, I remembered what the Western reference was that Danny had said to me originally. His quote was, I enjoy being a girl is fairly pivotal in Western culture, and probably <laughs> I have things to say about it. This is the song that kind of like drew me to this episode as kind of a, a queer theory uh, examination, because absolutely like the song is ridiculously gender essentialist as as you say and really and gender essentialist in like kind of a a vicious like if you take all of these lines seriously it is it's just the worst thing but it's performed with more than a wink by this you know uh, long form drag performance by Miss Piggy, as well as then Cheryl Ladd, who was kind of in this duality between like jiggle television performer and hard, tough private detective, which is what they're they're kind of like bantering about at the beginning. That like that Miss Piggy is a character who can be excessively feminine and still be super strong and and push people around, and as we see here, like totally free apparently to just assault Kermit. Um, in the privacy of a dressing room for minutes uh, with no consequence. And Cheryl Ladd, because she's in Charlie's Angels and she has kind of this like private detective cop role, she is able to also kind of like sit in this weird place between, you know, kind of like jiggle television, gender essentialist um, stuff about like, I talk on the telephone for hours and I, I sit around and I enjoy dresses made of lace. Miss Picky basically is a trickster character who basically like wrote herself into the world. That is the thing that I, that I love the most about her. And that happened right around like now in the show, like 1978, 1979 is the moment when like the Muppet show was really popular. Um, but Miss Piggy specifically 
became really, really popular, like right here in, in season three. And then going into the Muppet movie where, where obviously she was like a huge star and, and was extraordinary. The thing that is amazing about her is as like a trickster figure, like Loki or Reynard the Fox or Bugs Bunny, you know, a character who uh, can kind of like rewrite the world around her just by asserting the truth as she wants it to be. And then because that is so funny, it kind of like draws everybody else into its gravitational pull because it's just funnier and more interesting than the world without that. And so she like on the show says, I am a huge and famous star. And like she says in, in the introduction here, like, you know, you love my big blue eyes, my, my blonde hair, my sylph like figure. She's just kind of like asserting these things that are obviously untrue and then kind of forcing everyone to come and and to be a part of that because being in that fantasy is more interesting than not. Basically, then she just did that not just within the show, but then also to the entire world so that she is like she's on the cover of People magazine as like a huge star and a sex. And, like People start talking about her in the real world as a sex symbol. And she just kind of like wrote her own place there in this weird kind of intersection of like pretending to be like clearly a drag act. Everybody knew that it was Frank Oz. Everyone knew that it was a guy, but it was so much fun to talk about her as being beautiful and a sex symbol and, and you know, the, the peak of femininity. I think that is basically like, that's, that's what my whole queer reading is about. It's just like the Muppets were able to do this, to take everything that was uh, kind of like, in these weird little margins stuff, you know, Gonzo sort of being in love with chickens or, or, you know, dancing with cheese, cross-dressing characters, all of these places where like, there's all these sort of like destabilizing uh, influences around kind of like what somebody's identity is. Miss Piggy, especially just like took that and put it out into the world and forced the rest of the world to go along with it. I think like she was kind of, I feel like that's, that's an inspiration for queer folks, I think. I mean, definitely was for me. And I feel like it's that kind of thing that sort of drew queer people specifically to the Muppets and, and kind of like brought us together to each other. It's sort of just like being inspired by um, these characters who kind of like came up with their own place in the world and then forced everybody else to, to come and live there. That's a very lovely vision of the Muppets. I like that. Yeah, there you go. And it's just so funny. It's so funny. And they get to pie Kermit in the face. And they get to yeah. pie Kermit in the face. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's this song that is so dreadful and just really like taking it apart line by line and beating it up basically. Yeah. And beating up everything around them. Yeah. I love how much they're responding directly to the song by just, I talk on the telephone for hours. So they she just the chops phone. the phone in right, half, yeah. pound and a half of cream upon my face, pie Kermit in the face with perfect timing. I love the timing of that pie. Yeah, yeah. It makes me so happy. Reaction. I mean, it's that's part of like what, what Christy was saying about the song, like and how well the song is constructed. Like you, Kermit almost has to react to the pie in rhythm. Yeah, and but that's what makes it funny, right? That's what makes it so good. Like it, it's it it's the song is constructed in such a way that it like it lends itself to this, even though that was never the intention. Mm-hmm. I love that we've seen other moments this season where Piggy and the guest star have been at odds. Um, or Piggy and Annie Sue have been at odds. And I love mm-hmm. that that's, that's actually what Piggy is expecting when the scene starts. And that's not what happens. Yeah. And, you know, and that Cheryl has that little winking, oh, you're a threat. But 
that it's it's so joyful and it's them being joyful yeah. together about violence <laughs> and you know poor kermit okay but whatever like it's just so it's so funny and you can tell like in character they're having a good time yeah it's pretty clear that in real life, Cheryl Ladd and Frank Oz and Jim Henson are all having a really good time. Like it's just fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really, really fun to watch. So we we close out the episode in not the forest of despair, but the you know backyard of allergenic lethargy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that's more it. Sunshine on my shoulder. Sunshine in my eyes can make me cry. Sunshine on the water looks so lovely. Sunshine almost always makes me and this is where the episode loses me (laughs) i I love like every little bit of this entire episode and then it hits sunshine on my shoulder i'm like i'm out (laughs) i'm good i got nothing from here (laughs) this is what i was saying earlier we're like i have no use for this song i never need to hear it ever again but i love it it's so sweet Fozzie's little head when when Fo- that is the thing is when Fozzie when Fozzie kind of puts his head on on Cheryl's shoulder for a second that's really beautiful also that was a longer yeah. clip than we usually use but like I just wanted to get as much of the arrangement in as possible because it was the most yeah. 1978 thing that has ever 1978 <laughs> it really is yeah this one I, I I it was losing me and then <laughs> when the whole group came in in harmony suddenly yeah. I was like why am I crying what's happening <laughs> Just it sneaks up on you. Um, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the song a little bit. This is uh, "Sunshine on My Shoulders." It's a John Denver song. Future friend of the Muppets, John Denver. It was uh, originally written in 1971. He co co-wrote it with. Okay, so I, I I can't figure out if the guy's name is Dick Niss or Dick Kniss. <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunate. That's what it is. Yeah. I mean, Dick all, all, all I know is that I I spent a. Uh, a sizable amount of time last night uh, singing it to that Faith Hill song, you know, Dickness, Dickness. <laughs> Which one is it? Oh, no. Um, <laughs> it is like if Knish and Kiss ran at each other from opposite directions, then yeah. you, you get a dick. A dickness. And- yeah. He, by the way, he was the bassist with Peter, Paul, and Mary for like five decades and uh, is considered by their fans and I think by them as sort of like the fourth member of their band. Why isn't it? Peter, Paul, and Mary. Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Dickness. I guess that kind of. They say is was he passed away a few years ago. Aww. Respect. Mike Taylor was the other guy. Uh, uh, Mike, Mike Taylor was a member of John Denver's band. He co-wrote Rocky Mountain High. Later, gave up music to become an archaeologist. Wow! Props to him. Yeah, he discovered that his his father had a, a diary leading to the location of the Holy Grail, and um, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, hap- that happens sometimes. 
It does. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I've seen that documentary. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so Sunshine on My Shoulders was a big hit, but uh, later it was uh, released a couple years after it was released as an album track uh, as a single in 1973. Uh, and in 1974, it hit number one on the Hot 100, uh, Billboard's yep. adult contemporary chart, and on Cashbox. Wowzers. Yeah. But how many times was it played on jukeboxes? That's I mean, it must have been a lot. God, I hope not very much. What a downer. <laughs> Be a bard. Hear this. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> Night's picking up. I think with this song, John never single handedly proved that moist music can transcend genre. Mm-hmm. That it's not just about adult contemporary, but also can bleed into folk and country. Yeah. Call this moist, but that's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> Perhaps. Call Mark, Mark and Sarah for a ruling. Uh, anyway, he'll be the guest star on the very next episode that we discuss at uh, the start of season four. Foreshadowing. Season four shadowing. <laughs> this is a classic, you know, guest star sings a song surrounded by the Muppets number. There is a weird moment where they're all looking up at her and then they all turn in unison to look at the camera <laughs> that <laughs> read a certain way could actually be extremely creepy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're there. Join us. <laughs> <laughs> I liked at the beginning, there's a very lovely, subtle butterfly that flies uh, around the bottom of the screen and then we don't see again. Uh, which reminds us how far we've come since Florence Henderson. I mentioned the moment where uh, with, with Fozzie, uh, Fozzie comes in and, and leans his head uh, on on her shoulder. Perhaps he is sunshine, um, and he just he looks so sad. And there's just something about that that puppet that I just love. That right, it can look you know ah waka waka, and also incredibly like soulful and sad and tired. And it's the same puppet. It's the same face and you know it's it's partly frank oz it's partly the design of it and and i I was especially taken by it in that in that moment well he just got a list of his bad points exactly no i mean Mm -hmm. it it tracks what's happening he needs a shoulder to lean on if if this was like a season four episode that probably would have been connected yeah you know where they were where it becomes like absolutely part of the show where you have to connect the backstage and the onstage Scooter comes in, she gives him a little boop on the nose. He's had a rough day. He's covered in worms. You know, there's all, yeah. all kinds of stuff going on. Everyone's had a tough time today. It is interesting that this ensemble of Muppets doesn't include any of the monsters, but does include two of the woodland creatures, uh, which I feel like is a big change in season three from what we would have seen if this had been in an earlier season. Uh, it also means that in the final tableau, we have three Muppets standing next to each other who have three totally different incompatible sets of eyes, which is just sort of weird <laughs> and creepy. Yeah, gone are the days of the color-coordinated frackles. That's true. Mm. Never mind that jazz! Listen, turkey! What? And get out of show business? One little bit of show business before we wrap this up. It's Pigs in Space. Dr. Strange Pork has invented a pill that makes pigs invisible. I think it's peachy neat. Um, and because this is 1978 or 79, I've already forgotten what time is. Uh, this leads to a war between the genders. Oh, the pills are beginning to wear off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pills, leave it! Oh, I get it! Okay, how'd you like a taste of your own medicine? What do you think she's planning? Uh, I don't know, Link, but let's not stick around to find out. Yeah. Link? Huh? Hey! Oh. Uh-oh, too late. We found out. Hey! 
that's the whole thing. They just hit each other for no reason. I mean, Piggy has a reason. Link hit her first. It is a nice kind of rebuttal to the to the true love number earlier. You know, we we talked about how like really they actually hate each other, and and so this is now kind of later in the episode that actually gets acted out. The weird thing about the sketch really is that Miss um, Piggy doesn't need to take any pills and become invisible in order to beat the shit out of people. Just makes the whole thing more insidious if she's invisible. She could just do it. She just does it all the time. She could. I really love the idea that after the the true love number, like the curtain comes down and they just both resume yeah. kicking the shit out of each other. Yeah. yeah, definitely. This don't make any sense at all. Well, we have reached the end of everything. Uh, it's the end of the episode, the end of the season. So before we say goodbye, I would love to take a moment to look back at season three as a whole. Forget uh, it! It's too late now! <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that was a phone ringing. We, w- <laughs> we yes. would love to, but we've been recording for two hours. Just, just very briefly, I'm wondering, like, if, if you had to sum up season three, what what's your overall impression of the season? Can you play the, I think it's peachy neat? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think it's peachy neat. I love this season. You know, my favorite episodes we've covered so far are in this season. Um, I know that I have more favorites to come but we're also about to cross the DVD Rubicon. So these are episodes that I think I love, but I have also not seen in even longer than I had not seen these episodes. So, you know, uh, I'm excited for what's coming up. And, um, you know, but this is, it's weird. Cause like the, the way that we do this, like it, it, it often sounds like I hate things, but I actually <laughs> really love the Muppet show. That's why we're here. Um, so like, yeah, I, I, like a, a lot of what we talked about the season has been really great, and and there have been some very high high points. I think they're, the low points have been surprising, um, and I'm just really I'm really looking forward to to some stuff that I know is coming up, and then to like rediscovering stuff that I have not seen yeah. since I was a literal child. Yeah, there were so many episodes that I was really looking forward to this season that met and exceeded my expectations, and given those, I was really surprised by the how low the low points were. Mm. But there were also some. Dizzying highs, for sure. I can sum up my feelings in a haiku. Are you ready? Show off. Mm-hmm. A lot of big swings. Yay, Harry Belafonte. Boo, Spike Milligan. <laughs> <laughs> that does it. You did it. Terrific! It's about time we had some sophistication on this show. <laughs> I-, I think um, I am a little less enthusiastic about season three as a whole than the rest of you, and that's in part because there was so much that was great about it, and so much of that was in the first half of the season. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little exhausted at this point. And for the most part, the second half of the season has not been bad, uh, Spike Milligan aside, Danny Kay aside, and sort of the average level of an average episode of season three is better than the average level of an average episode of season one or two. But it, it it's been a while since we've had one that made me really light up and and i'm hoping that they're spaced a little better in the seasons to come another weird thing for me about season three is that even though at this point the show is an international sensation and therefore they can attract sort of a higher caliber of guest i was less familiar on the whole with the guests of season three than i was with seasons one and two which probably speaks more to like my sort of weird old-timey nostalgia matching up with 
the like over the hill guests that they were able to attract in their early seasons. But there's been good and bad to that because I feel like I've either discovered or gotten to know better a lot of talents who I was not as deeply familiar with. And that that's been a nice thing to do this year. Danny, I know you haven't been with us for this whole journey, but do you have thoughts on season three? Oh yeah, no, I got I got thoughts on everything. Uh yeah, no, season three, like if you look at the whole arc of the show from season one to season five, I think like the thing that comes together like over the course of the show is the idea that everything can all like work together and tell the same kind of story. So in season one, I think probably everything up to like the Valerie Harper episode, I think is like the one where they actually figure something out. But most of season one is just like running gags, you know, through like backstage, the story is just like Kermit and Fozzie answering the telephone. And then there's a thing on stage. Then there's maybe a thing in a dressing room, but nothing like connects as a story. And, you know, by the time you get to like season five, there's stuff that is like super rich, like, Glenda Jackson is a pirate and Carol Burnett uh, and the dance marathon is like things where every single thing that happens on the show is all sort of telling the same story. Um, and season three is where they start to kind of like to get that and they don't totally get it. So I think like in this, in this year, lot episode, like they've got two different running stories, but with like the Fozzie thing at the beginning and then the Gonza thing at the end. And really neither of them really had anything to do with what was happening on stage. But they had what happened this year. It was like, like Pearl Bailey kind of like coming together. Actually, the the Lynn Redgrave, mm-hmm. um, which was like the last one that they that they filmed where where they were doing a whole story of Robin Hood. Like that's really really new for the show. Is is doing something where like everything is all telling one story, and so I think sort of season three, like you get bits of that kind of coming in and out. Like Pearl Bailey ending up with the jousting scene, where it's just like it's the guest star and that and like we've seen these characters like preparing for that number over the course of the show. Um, they're kind of like, Oh, and Loretta Lynn, actually the Loretta Lynn one where like everybody's at a train station. Like they're starting to figure out how to tie all this stuff together in really interesting ways. And, but it's not until like season four when I think like that now becomes a thing that they can regularly do. That's good. And I, and I think that that points to uh, exciting things to come, which yeah. we are excited to get to when we get there, which we don't know when we do not know what our return schedule is yet. So stay tuned. Everyone will let you know. Stand by for mid course collection. On on that note, make sure you are subscribed uh, in the podcast app of your choice. And that said app is not set to, uh, you know, stop looking for new episodes if they don't update for a while. Uh, I only recently learned that was a thing and, Turn that off because some po- <laughs> some podcasts take breaks, and you want to know when we come back from a break. If that's not your thing, uh, you can follow us on social media. Uh, as of th- as of this recording, Twitter seems to not be going anywhere. That was much ado about nothing. But who knows? We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. If Twitter goes away, we'll find something else. We're Muppet Turkey. We're on Facebook too. We're on Facebook. There's an RSS feed on our website if you're old school, you know, all the things. But yeah, subscribing in your podcast app is the best way to do it. As you have no doubt figured out, we are recording a little bit in advance. So even if we take a break uh, from recording, it may not be as long a break as you take from listening. We might drop some bonus content in there. So, you know, sometime in the spring or possibly very early summer, we'll be back with season four and we may have something for you before then. So uh, don't don't go away. 
Don't give up on us. We'll be back soon. And that's a threat. Speaking of a threat, Danny, we hear you have things to plug. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> uh, yeah, every every single person who listens to this should go and check out Muppet Pictures on Twitter and Facebook. Even if you don't use Twitter, like just bookmark it and come by every once in a while because it is delightful and it's just beautiful pictures of the Muppets all the time. So you'll like that. Uh, and also my big project right now is called Superheroes Every Day. Uh, it's a comedy blog about the history of superhero movies, starting in 1978 with Superman the movie. And it, it's tracking how superhero blockbusters became the world's most efficient method of painlessly separating money from the public and then giving it to entirely the wrong people. Um, it is super fun. Currently serving up hot takes on 1983's uh, Superman 3. And I am planning to make a podcast, probably. So if you are listening to this in the future, people of the future, go and check out the Superheroes Everyday podcast. Uh, it's going to be really fun. Uh, it's superheroeseveryday.com and on Twitter and on Facebook. And uh, come check it out. Oh, I'm really looking forward to the podcast because I yeah. love the blog, but I'm so far behind. And <laughs> so I can be super far behind in another format as well. Yeah, that'll be fantastic. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. It has been a real thrill to have you here. Oh, from YouTube. Yeah, let's go while the going's good. Well, I'm glad something's good tonight. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us in the future. The future, the future. The, the future, future, the future, the future. For season four. You can find us on whatever social media still exists at that point at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Ryan Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. I'm worried it's racist, but I don't know why. It just feels like it should be. <laughs> it does have that. Well, it's from the past. Something. Of course it's racist. <laughs>